You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents Monster Talks, a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Food with Mark Bittman, Big Picture Science, and fork in the road. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Here's where I would normally throw in a clip from a movie. And there is a movie about this story, but it's not really suitable for podcasting because when it was made back in 1924, the movies were still silent. But if you can imagine flickering black and white images, the sound of the projector, the scent of popcorn, well, technically... Popcorn would be an anachronism because it wasn't really a popular movie snack until after the silence gave way to the talkies. Anyway, we can throw in some organ music. And on the screen, you would see a story unfold. It's a story about a dog that goes on a very unlikely journey of extraordinary length. And while the movie seems to have dramatized some of the events, the underlying story of incredible endurance and the emotional reunion of the dog with its owners, well, if all of this is true then that dog traveled over 2,500 miles to get back to his family. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Welcome back, listeners. Can you believe it? This is our 300th regular episode. We may celebrate later, but lately I've just been struggling to keep ahead of schedule. 
And I didn't get to put anything special together other than a fascinating topic and a fascinating guest, Richard Sugg. Now, Richard and I may not agree on the solution to all the mysteries that we research, but we definitely have the same kind of passion, and he is a superb writer and historian. You will not be bored by his books. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic which I find so mysterious and intriguing. Animals that can find their owners from dozens to even hundreds of miles away. It seems unnatural, yet, as we'll discuss, there's far too many cases to just dismiss this topic. Like with ghosts, it's likely that whatever the explanation is, it's not one simple thing. Do animals have perceptions and senses that we don't? Well, we know that it's true for some species. And I'll tell you up front that Karen and I are really curious about your thoughts on this topic. And if you want to email us or join us in our discussion over at patreon.org forward slash monster talk, we would love to hear what you think is going on. As far as I can tell, this is still an open mystery and may be so for some time because there's lots of ethical issues around testing something like this. Still, I expect someday we'll know more about the answers, but before then we have to know what the story is. So, for the 300th time, let's get to the Monster Dog. I'm excited to welcome back Richard Sugg, and I can't believe it's been almost 10 years since you were last on to talk about mummy curses and vampires. That is wow. crazy. Yeah, that, that, that Long book time. is still popular. Yeah, so it's it's a really good read. And uh, Richard, uh, you've written many books on topics that I think are probably near and dear to Monster Talkers, including a 2018 volume called Fairies that covers the dark side of the Fae, which is fascinating. But in this episode, we're, we're going to be going into what I like to call monster-adjacent territory, or, or maybe in this case I should say monster-adjacent territory, as we're going to be looking at the legendary story of Bobby the Wonder Dog, who was famously claimed to have walked over 2,000 miles to get home in 1923. Mm, anniversary. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a, that's, wow, 100 years. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. So welcome back to Monster Talk, Richard. Uh, what have you been up to? Many thanks. I've been busy. Yeah, I've been busy. I've just um, a couple of days ago put out a new uh, big history, Talking Dirty, uh, history of disgust from Jesus Christ to Boris Johnson, which has been a, a roller coaster ride through 2,000-odd years of disgust and disgusting things wow. uh, and people. So, yeah, that's that's the nonfiction. The fiction that's relevant to this is a novel I wrote a while ago called Carly the Wonder Dog, and it actually is a kind of political parable of the horrors of politics we've been suffering with Brexit in the last seven mm. years. So it does a kind of fun version of that uh, in 1930s London, told from the viewpoint of a dog and actually based on a real dog um, that was on the London stage in the 19th century. And yeah, that's that's out now in paperback and Kindle. And I'm yeah I'm working on ghosts all the time. Got a, a mm. couple of books on ghosts uh, in progress at the minute. Great. Well, Richard, if we could start by talking about the story of Bobby the, the Wonder Dog. Can you share that with us? Yeah, absolutely. So the centenary is coming up on the 15th of August. Uh, the... The Brazier family from Oregon, um, Frank and Elizabeth, and their two daughters, uh, Nova and um, Elena, um, were traveling for a kind of road trip, I think it was, uh, from Oregon across to Indiana. And they stayed uh, each night, I think it was, at 
what were called comfort stations. So early motoring, you've got these kind of bungalows you could take by the night, maybe a petrol station. And they got to Indiana and were staying for a little while with some relatives there. Uh, Frank was filling up the car one day and three dogs suddenly uh, bolted at Bobby, three strays at once. He raced off. Frank's not too fast because Bobby sort of been away from the car and come back, but he doesn't come back. They uh, search for him. They search with more people. He simply can't be found. So, of course, the uh, daughters are absolutely distraught. The family is distraught. And they they drive on a little bit. This becomes interesting. They go on a little bit further northeast in Indiana before they head back. And he leaves word that he'll pay for a, uh, a train journey of Bobby if he can be found and sent back by by train. But Orson mm -hmm. comes in, no dog, no word from over in Indiana. Christmas comes in pretty gloomy. Uh, and then um, rather neatly on the 15th of February, as he was lost on the 15th of August, uh, Nova is walking outside the family restaurant, which the, the parents run in uh, Silverton in Oregon. And she's with a friend and suddenly says, hey, isn't that Bobby? And this dog turns around. And as a historian, there's a lot of moments I'd like to be back at with a time machine. And I think this tops them all. The moment that Bobby turns around, flings himself uh, at Nova, whimpering and breathless with joy uh, hmm. and in very bad shape but but alive and survived to play himself in his own film uh the call of the west in 1924 of which at least a real survives i think uh, and becomes intensely famous so that with letters pouring in from across the country to bobby the wonder dog as he's soon known uh you've got reconstruction of what happened on his journey back. So what's interesting is that he first off uh, went further into northeastern Indiana. So in some odd way, and it's almost certainly not by scent, he was following the family. Uh, and then in hmm. another very odd way, across, you know, the depths of winter in the Continental Divide, uh, deserts, mountains, frozen rivers, he, he stopped at every comfort station that the family had used almost as though there was some kind of psychic imprint left where they'd been uh, he was looked after by various people sometimes for quite a while when he seemed to have been actually hit by a car perhaps he had a hip injury at one point so yeah his journey was reconstructed and this gives us a clue as to the incredible process of of how this was done you know in terms of navigation well, can I just ask, how did they reconstruct his journey? How did they fill in the blanks? As, as far as we know, just uh, through letters, because, you know, it became a national sensation. It was in all the American papers, I should add, um, quite quickly. And people wrote and said, yeah, I remember this dog. You know, it was in oh. a bad way. It got an injury. I looked after it for several uh, weeks, I think. He did an average of 14 miles a day, but that obviously is a bit loose because of him taking rest periods, uh, mm -hmm. being fed, uh, his, his uh, claws, I think, were worn down to the to the nothing, you know, when he got back. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, he was he was a, a massive celebrity. And they worked out that he'd stopped at all the comfort stations uh, looking for them on his on his route home. That's, that is incredible. Well, and I, mm -hmm. I, <laughs> I guess this is sort of the inspiration for like the Homeward Bound movies. 
yeah, yeah, well, the thing is, it's it's actually not as uncommon as you'd think. I mean, he seems to have cracked it in terms of sheer distance, you know, sheer endurance. I mean, a vet, because he died, I think, at age seven, maybe. A vet said he'd aged in age 10 years on that journey. Mm. Um, so, you know, collies are remarkable dogs. He was a, a collie cross and they are amazing dogs. But in, funnily enough, in 2016, uh, just... Uh, a few years ago in Britain, a collie dog was sold to a new home, so sent from Wales to Cumbria, which is basically about 240 miles, and in a few days it was back home in Wales. And yeah, collies are very energetic, and they, I think, would be counted as alpha dogs. The, the dogs that can do this are you know, a certain number, and they're what's called alpha or upper intermediary dogs, but uh, quite a few breeds can do it. Uh, if I tell you that in, I think it was 1949, uh, a dog actually travelled back from the Blue Ridge Mountains of Kentucky, it jumped out of the car when the family was on a trip, uh, and 16 months later, it turned up back in New York, which was apparently a, a thousand miles. Um, it's a haul. The, yeah. uh, <laughs> I've driven it. Driving it is one thing, but if yeah. you're going yeah. on your own four paws all the uh, way and having to navigate, this was a four-year-old Pomeranian dog. Pomeranian? Uh, Pomeranian, which That's like, surprising. You, know, you sort of said to me, name your top 10 homing dogs. Your Pomeranian is going to be sort of down in the 90s or something. Yeah, but, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Four-year-old four Pomeranian comes home uh, and is found by the 14-year-old the daughter, I think, when he got back. Um, and funnily enough, in 1923, the, the Daily Mail was running a story just before Bobby got lost. So uh, what was called the Odyssey of a Dog, it was sold, it seems to quite often happen. Um, from its home and its master in Denver to new home, St. Joseph, Missouri. And it turned up again back in Denver, 700 miles worth. So in the same year of, of Bobby's journey. Um, this, this goes on and on. We've actually got a, a kind of 50-year anniversary right now as well in Europe. So a guy called Armin de Broglie had an Alsatian. Uh, he lived in Solingen in West Germany. It's he, a German shepherd. Uh, yes, he, he found that he quite large dogs, you know, so he found the dog was getting too large for his flat. He gave it to a friend, uh, also German, but the friend happened to go to Bari, which is probably known as the very south of Italy. Um, the friend went on a holiday to Bari. The dog uh, got lost in Bari while he was on holiday. And this is a cracking story because um, the dog decides to come home to uh, Armin de Broglie, its original owner. It takes, um, I think, about a year and it turns up on Christmas Eve of 1973 back, wow. at, back at de Broglie's flat in, in Solingen. So that was a journey of, I think, 1,200 miles. And so, I've, I've, know, I, I know some friends who've backpacked across Europe and they described it as a rather hostile environment. Well, this is it. I mean, the territory, you know, I mean, what route did you oh, take? Mm -hmm. I don't think we really know or people could find out. But, mm -hmm. but you know, pretty, pretty mountainous, I imagine. I would say th maybe a yeah. third of my wallpaper pictures on my computer are the Alps. I just... I, <laughs> Treacherous. They're beautiful to see, but I can't imagine having to cross them, you know? 
of travel yeah, yeah. yeah. um and in in winter possibly or in you know before before spring by the mm. look of it oh my gosh uh, you said that bobby died at the age of seven do we know what he died of I, I think that from what the vet said, he really was prematurely prematurely aged by the uh, by the journey. They, the vet said ten years uh, was was added to his life by this, so it wasn't you know accident or anything. Just just, just died worn young, down, but, yeah, yeah, but worn out. The wear and tear, I think, yeah. Poor thing, remarkable. Yeah, so a short life but a glorious, I guess. For yeah, well, yes. yeah. What what fame, especially for the 1920s? My goodness. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the uh, uh, maybe bri- briefly more famous than Rin Tin Tin. What? <laughs> well, Rin Tin Tin actually, funny you say that. Rin Tin Tin, I think, laid a wreath on his grave um, when when he died. So <laughs> they yeah. kind of came together. Yeah, yeah, just about. That is amazing. I mean, not. I mean, I'm sure that was arranged. Rin Tin didn't yeah. hear about the death and then go to the funeral on his own or anything like that. I mean, it would truly be still. psychic. <laughs> Did you? How? Now, I know you're a historian, and I, I during the pandemic, I followed you on Twitter, so you were constantly talking about different things you were reading and researching. Um, Thanks. I've, yeah, I've come off of social media since then for my own mental health. But yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I, what what drove this particular project? Is this part of a writing or just personal research or what? What, what yeah, led to this? Yeah, it's um, it's been going for a while with a, a book I put out in 2017 um, called "A Singing Mouse at Buckingham Palace." That's another story and a true story. Uh, but the stories I, I found about dogs fascinated me. So this was one from the Daily Mail in 1900. The Boer War was going on in uh, South Africa and a regiment from England had a, a collie dog as a mascot where it had come from. It was called Mr. Doggy, imaginatively. And Mr. Doggy <laughs> was taken with them when they shipped off to South Africa. When they docked, uh, they had 500 miles yet to go, I think mainly on foot, actually. But anyway, they lost Mr. Doggy. He, he didn't get back on the ship for the next leg of the, the sea voyage. And so they gave up the poor dog. And they finally struck camp uh, quite deep in the interior. It was, I think, 500 miles from where they'd last seen the dog. And a few days later, the dog turned up, um, having... A, travelled 500 miles or, or more, but also having found its owners uh, in a completely unfamiliar place. So this adds another kind of piece to the puzzle and another clue to the mystery. You know, dogs can home in on their owners, sometimes across amazing distances, in a place they have never been. And so actually can cats, funnily enough. Yeah, I, I did read about uh, two two sort of incredible journey cats um, when I was researching yeah. this. I, I ran into this topic about a year ago. I think it, well, yeah. something like maybe March of last year or something, and um, and I found it really interesting. I mean, there is the concept of homing in, in multiple mm-hmm. species, like pigeons. Well, and- yeah, it's like there's 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 insect like the monarchs. There's migratory monarchs that travel from North yeah. America down. Well, they, it's still in North America. They go from the middle of the United States down into Mexico and back again. Yeah. So, and then um, there's uh, obviously famously pigeons and other birds have some sort of magnetic sense and they know, you know, North and South and they know where to go to migrate for their territories. And then fish spawn 
and go back to their spawning mm-hmm. grounds. It's like it's not we don't yeah. understand. Like science has some biology has some giant holes in it. <laughs> no, this is, this is right. I think this is a really fascinating future science in waiting. You know, yeah. but you you mentioned the magnetic thing. And the most recent, there's been a fair number of experiments, often done by Germans, but some Czech people uh, from a uh, university in the Czech Republic recently um, did three years worth, including up to about 2020, uh, of experiments with dogs, releasing, it wasn't a huge distance, about a kilometre, I think, uh, in, in, in forested areas, so they couldn't see the people they were going back to. But interestingly, they're going back to people, you know, again, in this case, uh, and they found that they, the ones that could do it and didn't get lost, they weren't sniffing and they definitely seemed to orientate themselves along uh, north-south magnetic axis. So yeah. it, it, it's it's not, it, you know, people sort of say, oh, the dog sends its way home. But of course, Bobby is a test case for this. I mean, you know, the, the a collie doesn't actually have a brilliant sense of smell compared to a lot of other dogs or, you know, the top top sniffing dogs and obviously when you've got sub-zero temperatures you're, you're sent trail across six months or whatever he's mm-hmm. he's gone so yeah it's it's something we're getting clues to but it's still pretty mysterious as, as it is I, I guess one question was how much time did bobby spend in the original home location before the road trip mm-hmm. like i wonder like to what extent Bobby had a sense of place. And obviously the mm-hmm. story about the Collie in South Africa, that doesn't have any bearing, I guess. Uh, but I, I, I've always, I was curious if Bobby remembered the terrain, maybe instead of the people, I yeah. don't know. You know, we, mm-hmm. it's we're th- while I was reading, I ran across this concept. There's the notion of homing, but there's also this in the in the literature. There's this concept of what they call side trailing, which would be a more supernatural sort of approach to it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or if 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 psi is real and if psi is supernatural versus an unknown natural phenomenon, I guess there's lots of thoughts yeah, on that. Yeah, I, 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 think, I think you're right. I mean, he was he was two years old when he got lost, so he had a couple of years in in Silverton in Oregon. But I think you're right on the side point. I mean, one uh, nice little story I turned up recently from Bedford in England, near where I grew up. Uh, Chaps writing to the paper in 1933, and he talks about a dog that is uh, moved from one home to another across Bedford. And two or three times a week, the dog goes back to the old home. And they're so used to it, they just give it a meal, tell him, go home, and he goes (laughs) home. The journey is only about three and a half miles, but very much, you know, it's a reasonable bit of traffic in those days of horse and car and, and motor cars. Um, The point about this is the dog is completely blind. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. 
We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur <laughs> injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. So, so, you know, he's probably not scenting his way. It's possible mm. three and a half miles, but he's certainly not finding his way, you know. Mm. Um, and I actually, I talked about this with somebody a little while ago and they said they got a blind cat um and the cat as you you know tends to go for its home rather than its owner so if you mm -hmm. the owner moved to another house a few miles away and the cat's not that attached to it's attached to the old house you know and in mm -hmm. one case in the 19th century um during a terrible winter snowstorm the cat simply went home back to lincoln from london about 100 miles uh during a <laughs> during a blizzard um so, yeah, this this friend's cat in America would go all the time back to the old house. You know, she just gave up trying to get it to the new home, took food mm. over to the old one. And again, the cat was the cat was blind. Uh, so, wow. it, you know, it wasn't finding its way. So I think, yeah, the sigh, the sigh notion is right. And I've been um, very indebted to a book mm. by a guy called Robert Charman, wonderful collection of short essays on many different kind of poltergeist ghost premonition stories wonderful premonition from mark twain about his brother dying uh, and he talks about animals he finds that uh in one case quite recently in devon in england a cow a couple of years old with its uh calf which was a few months old was sold to separate uh owners in uh england and it was seven miles distant that they were apart they're taken in kind of covered vehicles and what have you and the next morning, the mother uh, cow is found suckling its calf in a location it's never been to before. Um, you know, they're definitely the same animals. They've still got their auction tags on. Uh, there's, a, there's a cat uh, called Sugar in, I think it was the 40s or 50s. And it originally lived in Oklahoma. The family moved to California. And you'll know better than me, but I think this is about a thousand miles at least. And they found that the cat didn't like traveling. It had a hip defect. It might have been part of it, but long car journeys didn't want to put the cat through. This. So they gave it to their neighbors in Oklahoma. Off they go to California. Presently, they have a phone call with the neighbors. And sorry, the cat's gone, run away. We can't find it, but we'll let you know if we can. And several months later, there in California, uh, the lady of the house is hanging out the washing when the cat kind of leaps on her. And yeah, it looks like their Persian cat and she gets hold of it. And sure enough, it's got the same hip defect. So it's traveled a thousand miles in an uncat like way, I suppose, because it does go for its owners in this case, you know, completely unknown place. That's very um, unusual for cats since they don't really like people. <laughs> this is it. I mean, much more likely. Any, any Blake cat like cats. will tell you, you know, they'll, they'll happily go to someone that feeds them better or 
or mm. someone who just well, take a fancy to. Um, but but this one, yeah, found them in a completely different place uh, well, across about a thousand miles. You've uh, reminded me of uh, something that happened to me when I was a teenager living in Sydney. Um, yeah. I would there's a little set of shops uh, maybe about a kilometre from my home at that time. And uh, I spotted this beautiful Persian cat one day and it was hanging around a kind of pet store and there was a a vet clinic there as well. And uh, so just keeping an eye on this cat, it didn't seem to have a home. And uh, so one day I took it back home with me and started feeding it. And uh, so it, it stayed with us for a couple of days and then disappeared one day. And I was coming back from school, walking home, and uh, noticed that uh, the cat had gone back to the the vet clinic, and where it was getting fed, and it was getting petted, uh, and then would walk home with me. So we had this situation for quite oh. some time where the cat was living uh, at yeah. home with me, but would go to its job, I guess, right? Uh, yeah. in, in a sense, during the day to get attention and to get food. And the yeah. interesting thing is that uh, we decided to call the, the cat Do. I don't know why. I think it was uh, like uh, in honor of the Beatles song, Love Me Do, or something like that. Yeah. But uh, yeah. we later on found out the history behind this cat and that uh, he'd been owned by a flight attendant. So the flight attendant was never home. And her uh. name for the cat was actually Shu. And it was along the lines of shoe, get, get away kind of thing. Right. So, right. yeah, this cat was really uh, neglected. But uh, one day coming back home from his job, he was hit by a truck and he did survive, but he, oh, was, he, he wasn't uh, doing well for quite some time. And eventually when I left uh, Sydney, I gave him to a friend and I don't know what happened to him, but it was just remarkable to see uh, his behaviour, that he kind of had a, a job during the day, day job and... <laughs> <laughs> would yeah. then come home to be with me yeah well i mean of course could therefore you know navigate the same thing over and over again yeah. obviously mm-hmm. um i mean that's slightly reminiscent of a a wonderful dog story actually which uh, shows you the, the other kind of navigation a dog can do there's a terrific animal in the 1950s and 60s in italy near rome called lampo uh, meaning lightning, because it just appeared out of nowhere, basically. And it, it, it took to the um, guy who was working at a station, Campiglia Maritima, not far from Rome. He wasn't the station master, uh, and it it kind of adopted him and the station. So it would it would sleep in the station. No one knew where it came from, um, and it presently ended up at his house as well. Got a bit of a scrap with his cat Tiger. But uh, but the whole family became very fond of the animal. And he had a daughter, Mia Nabalatani, who was at kindergarten. So every single day of the week, <laughs> the dog would get on a train from Campiglia Maritina to another station called Pionvino, get off the train, uh, doing the, all this in perfect time to get to Balatani's house, pick up Mirna, who was four, walk her to kindergarten, walk back, um, whether he stopped at the house again, I'm not sure, but walk back to the station, catch the train back to Campiglia Maritima, where he liked to be, spend the day there until sometime in the afternoon, get the train back again, whole thing in reverse, go to the kindergarten, pick up Mina uh, and walk her home. 
Um, and yeah, you know, how did you know which trains to get on at what time? How did he afford the um, tickets? There's so many questions. That's <laughs> a good point. <laughs> he, 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 I think he got free passes, but not quite in the end because the station master who was over Balatani was his boss, basically, took against uh, Lampo after a while because they got new automatic doors. Oh. He mm. got stuck in the doors oh. at one point. He said, This is dangerous. So they exiled the dog. They sent it on a train down to Naples. I thought, you know, people <laughs> at Naples would look after it, whatever. Anyway, um, the dog clearly was very fond of the station and of Balotani. A few months later, it comes back. This is a long way from Naples to north of Rome. Um, the station master says, look, I'm sorry, it's still dangerous. We can't have this. So he exiles it even farther, possibly down to Bari or something, you know, where the Alsatian had been lost. Um, and at this point, you know, months and months and months go by. And of course, the little girl's distraught, the family's distraught. Everybody knows the dog, but, you know, they think, right, that's it, we're not going to see it again. And then, I don't know, something like seven, eight months, the dog turns up back at the station um, and became a, a national celebrity. I mean, hounded by the paparazzi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hounded. Yeah. <laughs> hounded, yeah. yeah. Um, 1962, I think it was, he was in This Week magazine, the American magazine, uh, and had more space than Kennedy. Uh, and you can still see Lampo's, um, Lampo's statue in, in the station. He died with his boots on, I think, basically. He got hit by a train in the end. But he had oh. a good, good, good long life, you know. So, yeah, just... Remarkable. Long... Well, it, you know, I was thinking about a couple of things that affect this. And, like, so one, these are both kind of math-related, or maybe. But one is survivorship bias. We don't know how many pets try to make yeah. it and just get killed along the way. Like maybe there would be more of these cases. Um, And so maybe there's something going on more common than we know, but just Mm. it, 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 it obviously is a grueling ordeal. And the Mm. other thing is so many civic laws have changed so that, you know, you've got leash laws and animal control and all these sort of Mm -hmm. factors that diminish how often pets are able to practice any of these skills that they might have, you know, it's just, so, so it's, um, I, I there it's it seems like we might have you know some behavioral like real big holes in our you know understanding of these things that these animals that are around us all the time you know mm-hmm. this is it i mean my my mother's dog um to i've dedicated the the book to the memory of my mother but also her dog pat the other great moment in history i'd like to have been at was the uh day on which her grand her father my grandfather came home from a business trip where he'd stayed with a landlady in a, in a little guest house and she said to him, look, come out here to the garage. Would you like one of these? Sure enough, my grandfather turns back up at home to my mother and uh, her two brothers with a puppy in his pocket. Uh, and she <laughs> remember to the day she was 85, not long ago, uh, this was the happiest day of her life. And Pat was just allowed to roam around. You know, he was a, a collie terrier cross himself. He was allowed to roam around as they were in those days. And uh, he was stolen by the gypsies or the circus or something at one point and really lost for a few days. You know, they were really panicked. Uh, and he came back with a rope around his neck as a kind of impromptu leash. So, yeah, he could do this. And dogs in those days had the chance to kind of go away, get lost. Uh, another factor, I think, relating to that, which is interesting, is now, of course, we've got all the microchipping. So mm-hmm. once upon a time, mm-hmm. is this really your dog? Is it really your cat? Well, people say, yeah, damn well, it's got a microchip, you know, it's bang to rights, so there's no question. And this was interesting in 2020, uh, in July, a mix of a Labrador retriever and a Border Collie 
was moved because the family moved house and reminding myself they moved from Kansas uh, no they moved from Missouri to Kansas and presently uh, people in the house who've taken it over in Missouri find this unfamiliar dog on the doorstep and they think who's whose is this and they check the microchip think hang on the name looks familiar yeah this is the people who who lived here and this this means they can identify the dog travel 57 miles and it gets reunited with the with the owners in their new home in uh kansas but i guess in the old days you just kind of well it's a nice dog we like dogs we'll take it in or you don't like dogs you send it to the dog pound what have you but now we're getting these stories kind of joined up perhaps in ways ways which we weren't and yeah one of the sad uh kind of proofs um i'm afraid down to right now really and certainly through a lot of newspaper archives i've looked at is when people get murdered uh if they're out with a dog the dog comes home you know first bad news is the dog comes home on its own uh and that that happens quite a lot so the dog can find its way back whatever distance that mm -hmm. is i don't usually press people on this but just out of curiosity what do you think is going on what's your like best explanation or what's what's the most what in your head what do you think is the most likely explanation for how this is happening I, I think mm. I've just about got it. I mean, you know, the fine details and a lot more science, I, I can't claim to know. But the experiments that have been done, um, the dogs are not sniffing their way. And in fact, the ones that can do it, and what you say about survival is interesting because it's the alpha dogs that can do it. The other ones just get lost, you know, uh, and they just go to someone's doorstep and wait to be taken home. But the kind of third <laughs> of them that can do it, maybe, um, they they scout around for a little while looking probably like they are orientating themselves as that guy said they scout about um they, they seem a bit uncertain and then their head will go up in a very peculiarly stiff way it's almost like it's snapping to a compass point you know um and then they will travel back they can get distracted by another dog or whatever and if they do this will slow them down or it'll mess them up but if not they will go back and they will go back best and quickest in misty weather and in darkness and they look like this is a quote they look like they are being ridden by an alien force they look like they're in some kind of trance so to come back to what you were saying they look like they are in psi mode they're in kind of psi autopilot and they sometimes stumble over low fences or into things you know as though they're not using vision um, they've been watched very carefully they're not sniffing their way and you then got the kind of split between are they going home to a place they've lived in for a long time, nice associations, for whatever reasons, or are they going to the owner in a completely different place? And this, I think, was was reasonably routine over small distances. I've got a story in A Singing Mouse about somebody who goes to visit a farmer. The farmer's not in and the housekeeper says he's out somewhere in the fields, not sure where. I says, I'll come back, I'll come back. No, no, you don't need to come back. Here's the dog. She takes the dog, and it's a spaniel, puts a note under his collar uh, and says, go find the farmer. And she assures him, look, wherever the farmer is, he can be in somebody else's house, he can be miles away, the dog will find him. Um, so, yeah, the dog is homing in on a signal, uh, which is either its owner's, or it's 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 home, or I suppose both. In you know, in some cases where the owners are at the house, and I I think what's lovely about this is that 
I'm very keen to know much more science about this down to the you know, minutest details. But in actual fact, in a quite genuine and rigorous way, how is this done? What is the power, the force that draws a dog like Bobby across incredible hardships, incredible weather, incredible terrain for six months? The answer is quite simply love. Oh, <laughs> I did not expect you to say that. <laughs> I didn't either. <laughs> I love it. Very sweet. Yeah. So. At the moment, I think this is our best guess. But that still can't explain how how do cats do it then? I don't understand. Uh, <laughs> well, I think, you know, this, this sounds like a dog owner talking. I think, I think you yes. might be in trouble with the yeah. cat owner. Yeah. Yes. I mean, they sometimes love the wrong person, you know. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's what it is. That's what it is. Them yeah. pay for them. But um, they, they have a love of their own, perhaps. Um, no. What I can what I can. Well, it's so interesting, and I think there's so much more that we have uh, yet to, to discover about this topic. But, uh, Richard, we have had you on the show before, and you had said at the time that your favorite monster was the poltergeist. Uh, is there any other monster that's been holding your fascination more recently, or is that still your favorite at present? Um, good question. Um... I think it, it probably has to be poltergeist. Fairies uh, fascinated me doing that research, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. vampires in, in vampire belief. Um, but in both those books, actually, the kind of thing that kept coming back as a common denominator was the poltergeist. You know, a lot of stuff where people say this is fairies doing it, they say it's vampires doing it. They're talking about poltergeist, no question. You know, somebody's throwing stones from nowhere through your windows for months on end. You can't find out who. Um, they're, they're banging on your roof. Uh, they're throwing things around your kitchen. It's it's the poltergeist. So I, yeah, I think so. And I think um, you know the the fact that poltergeists um, are technically sort of restless, noisy, racketing spirits, but actually you do get you do get simply um, uh, a dead friend relative who who comes back to say goodbye, and the phenomena it can be a bit like poltergeist and i you know i mentioned that uh, my my mother died uh in 2021 and she was 85 but the longer someone is around the the more fond of them you get she was an amazing person uh and did a miraculous job bringing us up and i think made it all look so easy our condolences yeah Uh, yeah thank you well it was a hell of a time it was all covid related and you know Mm. it wasn't a normal way for things to happen but i was um i was back here in cardiff in um uh the winter just a, a week after it happened and i was uh, just waking up on a Sunday morning. I, I live in a detached house. It was winter, so everything's kind of shut up. Uh, and as I was lying there for about a minute, um, I could smell the exact smell <laughs> of Sunday roast, as my mother used to cook it back mm. in St. Albans during my childhood. Um, you know, I, I never had anything else happen. I've had very few paranormal experiences, but that mm. that was exactly how she would say goodbye if, if she was going to choose her way to do it. Well, and obviously it was it was deeply meaningful to you. That's that's uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that that experience of seeing contact from the other side and and feeling like it's a real and genuine message is so amazing and powerful. Yeah, I think much more common than we we realize. You know, because there is this kind of artificial taboos being created in an age when we break all these old taboos, but we've got a new one. And the the book I really am keen to get out in a while is we need to talk about ghosts. And it reflects the fact that I go and ask complete strangers on a nice day in the park, 
about ghosts and about, I don't know, 40, 50 percent of people have got a ghost story to tell me. Do you tell this to other people? Have you told this to other people? Uh, no, no, I don't. You know, so they're kind of embarrassed, uh, marginalized, etc. There's a little bit of a gendering thing with this as well, I think. You know, I've got a my, my next door neighbor I knew for quite a while before I said to him, I'm like writing a book about ghosts and her eyes lit up. And we ended up going out for two hours to talk about the two different haunted houses she'd grown up in. Um, and yet, uh, you know, her boyfriend, who she's known for years and years, I mean, they've actually been childhood friends way back. Um, so very, very close. He he will say, yeah, I saw a ghost. And then he'll change his mind and say, no, I didn't see the ghost. You know, so what is the, what is the hallucination here? Um, you know, what state of mind is the correct one? And, and so on. But uh, yeah, some people are easier admitting this and more comfortable with it than, than others. I think. Thank you again for coming to talk to us about this fascinating topic. I have to say, for, yes. for our listeners, I say this one's not solved. I mean, like I, you know, I'm not going to like close out this with a trite little skeptical. Here's what's really going on, or anything like that. Yeah, I'd say keep open minds. Keep an open mind, and and let, let's see where the science leads. But I mean, animal. Mm-hmm. Homing, migration, finding their way home, this is really complicated and interesting and mm-hmm. may have different answers for different species, which is also fascinating. So, yeah, I, uh, that's, that's I mean, horses, cows, cats, dogs, you know, as you say, pigeons, all sorts of birds. You know, in 2008, uh, they found that cattle orient north and south when they're grazing. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think they say dogs do this in terms of defecation, actually. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the, you know, that's it was really that that I could see that moment when the dog's head goes up, you know, and very stiff, very unnatural way. And from that point on, it just goes. It just goes like it's almost on tram lines um, and like there is some kind of weird signal pulling it along. Um, wow. So it yeah. is so well, interesting. There's lots more to be learned. Yeah, I think exactly. You know, I'd love to know much, much more detail on this. So, stuff. listeners, if you want to chime in with your opinions, please send us letters. Uh, Blake at monstertalk.org, yeah, yeah. Karen at monstertalk.org. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Love to hear from you. Absolutely. Great. Okay. Thank you so much. We will, I'm sure, talk again. Thank you, Richard. Good to chat with you. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. That was great. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with historian and author Richard Sogg. Please check the show notes for links to several of Richard's books, as well as to lots of links about the topic of animal homing and long-distance returns. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. And we sincerely appreciate your taking the time to listen to our show. 
This has been a Monster House presentation.